Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much for the blessing of knowing you. And that as we seek you today in your word, we are recognizing that we need Jesus. There's nothing in us that can mend the broken heart. The hurt and the waywardness, the lostness, the hopelessness that we feel, the fear and anxiety that has been mounting, especially the last couple of years. Lord, there's nothing that can satisfy but the grace of Jesus. And so we want to sing about that today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that has saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord, for having provided all that we need in Jesus. And it's because of him that we want to come before you, not to earn your love, but fully aware that you have already lavished your love upon us. So today we behold the love of God. What manner of love that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Father, as we open up the word together, we're praying that on this Reformation weekend, that you would work the miracle of Reformation in our lives. Father, we want to study, not just for information's sake, we want to study for transformation's sake. So please, send us your Holy Spirit. As we open up the Bible, may we experience what the Reformers of old experienced, that when they read the Word, they were reading life. God, please speak life to us today, we pray. In Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen and Amen. All right, so we are actually partway through a sermon series that we started last Sabbath called Ready for His Return. Ready for His Return. We were looking at Matthew chapter 24 and particularly getting into Matthew chapter 25 because it's there that Jesus gives probably the most thorough instruction of not just how to get ready for His return, but how to be ready today, right? And so we looked at that parable that many of us are familiar with. It's the parable of the ten virgins there at the beginning of Matthew chapter 25. And we found that really to be ready is to be in relationship with Jesus. And we saw that the five wise, including the five foolish, they actually did some very similar things. They, they went out to meet the bridegroom. They had a heart that was set on eternity, not just on earthly things. But they also took lamps with them. They took lamps. And we discovered that the lamp that, that we are to take in order to be ready for Jesus' return is the lamp of God's word. Amen. So friends, we wanted just to pause just a little bit on that today especially on this Reformation Sabbath, when we can kind of look at ways that people have taken God's Word as a light to their feet and how we can do that today. So go with me to the passage that was read for our scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at uh, a few verses there together. Because those ten virgins, man, we, we saw that part of readiness involves taking our lamps, grabbing a hold of light, not just for ourselves, but also for those around us. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, when you're there, go ahead and say amen. amen. Awesome. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You see, it wasn't just Jesus that taught us the necessity of taking hold of God's lamp. It was also Paul. Paul here, he's actually anticipating the times at the end. If you go to the, the beginning of that chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1. It says, but know this, that in the which kind of days? The last days, perilous times will come. 
Right, so he's kind of looking ahead, anticipating what's on the horizon. He says, man, those times, they're no joke. It's perilous. Why? Verse 2, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Man, it looked like Paul was just scrolling through uh, Fox News or whatever, you know. <laughs> I mean, Paul is really, he's describing what we know as kind of the normal, right? Sure enough, we are living in the last days. These, all of these expressions of denial of God, refusing to submit and, and surrender and find in Jesus the grace that we need. But what's really interesting is that verse 5 kind of turns the mirror, not just looking outward, but even looking inward. It says this in verse 5, having a form of what? Of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, having this appearance or having the front or facade of being like God, of, of actually following God, but really being in denial of God's very power. Do you realize that denying God is kind of like a spectrum? There are, on one end of the extreme, there are blatant expressions of denying God. But then on the other end of the extreme, or the other end of the spectrum, I could say, is that there are expressions of denying God that really don't look like it's denying God. In fact, it looks like it's allegiance to God. Having this form of godliness, but really denying God underneath the surface. That's what Paul is looking at. And it's in light of this you know, this dual dynamic of denying God that Paul gets really specific with his instructions to Timothy. Go down to verse 13. It says, but evil men and imposters, kind of, again, Paul is kind of encapsulating the two ends of the extremes of denying God, very wickedly or even posing to be followers of God, right? Verse 13, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you, you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Verse 15, and that from childhood, you have known the what? The holy scriptures, which are able. I don't know if you think of the Bible as able, but it has a capacity to do something. Well, to do what, Paul? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Friends, what you're holding in your hand, what you have on your phone, the Holy Scriptures, they are able to do a work of salvation in your life and mine. Man, this isn't just ink on paper. As Hebrews chapter 4 says, this is the living word that is active, like a double-edged sword, cutting to the heart and soul, thoughts and motives. The word of God is alive. I think this is why Peter, I think it's in 1 Peter chapter 1, near the end of that chapter, he says that, man, this word is able to make us born again. Wow. Now, we're not talking about making a God of the Bible, but we do find God in the Bible speaking to us, amen? And the reality is that when God speaks, life happens. When God spoke in Genesis chapter 1 where there was nothing, when he said, let there be light, there was light, right? When God speaks, life happens. That's why in Hebrews chapter 1, 
talking about Jesus, chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews, it says that he upholds all things by the power of his word. Friends, do you know the power of God's word today? Do you know the necessity of seeking God's word today? You see, the, the Bible is, in fact, not just a nicety. It is a necessity. You follow me? I think it's Job. He says it like this, that I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. I know, I know. I'm not the only one that's getting wafts of the food from potluck uh, in here. Hey, that, that's necessary. Yeah, yeah, we can treasure that. But you know what we ought to treasure more? The very word of God. The very word of God. That's why those who are awaiting the arrival of Jesus, as Jesus depicted it in the parable of the ten virgins, they are people who take their lamps. Right? They, they grab hold of them. They want to take possession of it for themselves. Readiness for the return of Jesus involves finding that we can depend upon God's word. But I tell you what, there was a period in Christian history in which that was far from the case. In fact, laying hold of the lamp of God's word wasn't even physically possible, let alone spiritually possible. It opened up what, you know, People can look back at that age of history as the Dark Ages. Does, does this sound familiar? Yeah? The Dark Ages, for, for many, many reasons, but I would say primarily because the lamp of God's word was out of reach. It was out of reach. And so it led to a time when man's traditions and man's fallible interpretations of God's word actually substituted for the very word of God. And all of this, I would say, led to a deformation could say. A deformation of what biblical faith really was. During that time of the Dark Ages, it necessitated a reformation, right? It necessitated a revival according to the Word. And like we said earlier, October 31, it's not just a day for candy and costumes and whatever other dark things other people might have in mind. But October 31 is a time to celebrate. Whoa, God was at work in Christian history. Even in the midst of the darkness, he was bringing out light. Amen? He was giving people an opportunity to take hold of the word of God. And so when we think of the Reformation, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe you think of Martin Luther and his, his doctrines of by grace alone, you know, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, right? You know, the, the, the Latin terms for this was sola gratis, sola fide, solo uh, Cristo, right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. However, I would say that all of those doctrines that Martin Luther really brought to the forefront, they all rested on a common foundation of this, by Scripture alone. He could only come to the conclusion of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, as he understood it's by the authority of God's word alone. Do you follow me today? Yeah? Actually, one author, Nicholas Miller, he writes this in his book, uh, The Reformation and the Remnant. He says this about Luther's beliefs. Luther's beliefs about Christ, grace, and faith stood on the foundation provided by another doctrine one that allowed him to pierce the medieval facade. Well, what doctrine was that? The doctrine of the supreme authority of Scripture. Yeah. 
It was because he recognized that, whoa, wait, 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 wait. I ought to rely upon what God's word says, not what someone else says God's word says. Right? That allowed him to see the light of God's truth and to actually proclaim that in his sphere of influence and beyond. It's beautiful. And so before Luther's uh, 95 Theses, there was al already a very long runway of the Reformation that was paved before him. There were several that, that historians, Christian historians would call them, call them proto-reformers, okay? Pre-reformers. And today, I want to share the story of a couple of them that maybe, you know, maybe their story is not as familiar as Martin Luther's. And so I, I wanted to do that because these are individuals who God raised up to take hold of the lamp. God raised up to enable us to take hold of the lamp. All right, so two stories today. One of them is about this man, John Wycliffe. How many of you, just by a show of hands, have actually heard this name before? Yeah? Wycliffe, Wycliffe, I'm not exactly sure. Um, so born in 1330, about 150 years prior to Luther ever come, came on the scene. He was born in England. Actually, uh, John Wycliffe is known as the morning star of the Reformation. Have you heard of that, that phrase before, the morning star? I'm not just talking about veggie meat. You know, okay, the morning star. <laughs> Some of you get that. Anyways, the morning star, um, where do we get that term? The morning star is actually in reference to the planet Venus. Okay, Venus is, is not a star, but you can see it. It's like the brightest, quote unquote, star in the sky. Uh, it's also called the evening star. You know, there are certain seasons where, where Venus is the first thing to appear, the first star, quote unquote, to appear in the night sky. And then in the seasons when it's known as the morning star, it's actually the, the, the brightest one standing, the last one standing just before the dawn. Okay, so why is John Wycliffe called the morning star? Well, because he was shining brightly before the Reformation dawned onto the scene. Okay? So John Wycliffe, what, what, what was he like? Uh, again, born in the 1300s, he was probably one of the brightest minds of the 14th century. He was a professor of philosophy, turned into a theologian as he studied the scripture. He, he, he geared his, his intellectual power into the study of the scriptures. And the more he studied the Bible, the more he realized that the church as it was in his day, the Christian church, had fallen far from God's design. And Wycliffe, you see, he lived at a time when there was actually, you know, uh, it, it, amongst the, the population, there was a growing resistance to the established church. There was a growing awareness of the ways that the Christian church and its leadership had abused its power. But the people as a whole, they felt very powerless to do anything about it. Powerless to correct the ship. You know, there was an awareness, oh, something's just not right. But they didn't know how to go about it. One of the reasons why is because they didn't have the light of God's word within reach. In fact, to them, the Bible was considered a sealed book. It was inaccessible, like nobody could actually own a Bible. I don't know how many of us could actually count on our hands how many Bibles we have in our homes, but I would say that we live in a very luxurious land where we can have a Bible in our shelf. We can have a Bible on our coffee table. We can have a Bible on our phone. That is a beautiful gift. Back in Wycliffe's day, that, that was foreign to them. They had no clue what it was to handle a Bible, let alone see and study it for themselves. 
You see, the Bible was inaccessible physically, but also linguistically. If there was an opportunity to obtain a Bible, guess what? It wouldn't be in a language that they could understand. None of it was translated in a way that they could actually read and interpret for themselves. In fact, it was according to church law that translating the Bible into a common language was a heresy punishable by death. Wow. So, I mean, you think about just being involved in a, in a, in a church setting, in a church community where that was kind of the way things were and you just kind of knew that that was it. What would that do to your own spirituality? How genuine would that be, right? How personal would that be? I mean, just think for a moment what it would mean to you if you could not own a Bible or if the Bible, even if it were available, weren't in your language. And then what if on top of that you were taught that you shouldn't own a Bible and that you shouldn't read it because the only people that should are the people in trusted positions of exalted authority. And if you ever wanted to know what it said, you just had to go to them. I mean, that, that was the mentality, right? That was the mentality. And I tell you what, when people are cut off from the Word, they are cut off from life itself. Right. When people are cut off from the Word, they are cut off from light and the capacity to know who God is and who we are to Him. In fact, God's people throughout redemptive history have always found this to be true, that whenever there is the Word, there is life. Actually, go with me to a passage in John chapter 6. I was reading this the other day in my devotional reading. And I just realized again just how precious God's word is. John chapter 6, fourth book of the New Testament. When you're there, go ahead and say, I found it. John chapter 6. I mean, the story is actually quite interesting. This is uh, just on the heels of Jesus' amazing miracle of feeding the 5,000, right? And probably more than 5,000 that day. The next day, people want to be in Jesus' presence. They want to, to seek after him. And Jesus kind of causes them to check their motives. Like, do you just want bread? Or do you want bread? You know? <laughs> He's talking about spiritual bread, spiritual nourishment for the soul. And people are kind of going back and forth with him. They're, they're wanting to see who he's really, uh, is he going to take the throne of Israel and, and debunk the Roman Empire and stuff. And they have in their mind, as they're looking at Jesus, they have in their mind earthly ambitions, but Jesus wants to get to their spiritual need. And in John chapter 6, verse 63, I'll, actually I'll start, I'll start in verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, like they were just trying to figure out, is he really going to do this or what? You know, what is his, his agenda? He asked this question, does this offend you? Verse 62, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, hey, heavenly things, that's where it's at. The temporal agenda that you have in your mind, that's nothing. And then he says, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. According to verse 63, what is life to us? The very word of God. What Jesus himself speaks to us. What did Jesus say to, to the, the tempter in the wilderness? Hey, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We live by that. We live by that. Notice what happens in verse 66. 
From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Man. People heard this. Okay, you just want to give us the word of life? I could find some other things to do. Many walked away, walked with him no more, it says. Interesting, John chapter 6, verse 66. (laughs) And then in verse 67, it says this. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? In other words, there is nowhere else that could satisfy. And then notice what the rest of what Peter says. You have the words of eternal life. Hmm. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, you know, sometimes Peter, he, he, was, he was quick to speak his mind before really thinking about it. <laughs> but in this situation, I really think that God is inspiring the very words that he's saying. Hey, Jesus, you've got the words of life. There's no one else to whom we could go. Peter found in Jesus amazing grace. And that grace was through the very word that he spoke. Friends, do you know, do you know the word of God is life to you today? And Jesus, he, he, he understood this. This is why he taught the people in that way. This is why John, uh, at the beginning of the gospel, he actually uh, calls Jesus the Word. Right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why? Because the Word gives life. The Word gives life. Jesus rebuked religious leaders in his day. When you're looking at Matthew chapter 15, uh, there, there are times where Jesus had to rebuke the religious leaders because they were actually replacing God's word with man's traditions and making it difficult to obey God's word because they had their own rules and things set up and, and teaching as doctrines the commandments of men rather than the very word of God. And that is something, friends, when we... Let me put it like this. In the vacuum of taking hold of God's lamp, in the vacuum of grabbing hold of God's word, we end up replacing it with man's word. We end up replacing it with our own ideas and opinions. Friends, don't, you know, don't don't be ignorant of that trajectory. That uh, that really, it's a a pattern and a trend. The less we grab hold of God's word, the more we'll grasp for man's ideas and opinions, even authority. And Jesus was kind of rebuking that in his day. Wycliffe, Wycliffe saw the need to recover this priority for the Bible. And so he began to write. He began to publish. And, and he tried to set some things straight in contrast to what was already taking place. He tried to put that against what God's word plainly taught. And so he wrote many, many things. And the most significant, the most significant of his writings was the translation of the Bible into English. Whoa! Now people could read the word for themselves. Remember, he was born in England. This was now in the common language. He made the word of God accessible to the common person, which empowered people. It empowered people to submit themselves not just to the authority of the church, but to the authority of God's plain word. It opened up a door for people to take the lamp and have light to their feet. His writings had a huge influence on others. 
you know, obviously, you know, the, the translation of the English Bible, but his, his other theological writings, his other arguments and publications and things like that, had a huge influence on others that God was raising up to bring people back to the Word, including the second individual that we want to talk about today, uh, John Huss, or maybe uh, better pronounced, Jan Hus. Okay? Huss, by the way, uh, was referred to as the Goose Father. <laughs> um, Huss, I think in Czech, actually literally means goose. And so this is kind of a, a little nickname for, for Huss. I'll say Huss, even though I think the correct pronunciation is Huss. Just forgive me on that. Okay, John Huss. John Huss, he was a, though he grew up in a poor family, he eventually became a very well-known preacher at a chapel called the Bethlehem Chapel in the kingdom of Bohemia. And in Bohemia, the Bible had already been translated in the common tongue. Public worship was conducted in the common tongue. But the church at that time was trying to kind of, how do you say, strengthen its grip of control. And so it began to kind of undo some of these things that were a blessing to the people. In fact, it began to forbid public worship in the language of the people. What? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, some of us, we, we've, we're, we've gone to worship services that are not necessarily in our mother tongue, right? And uh, maybe you're here today and you're, you're, there's a language barrier for you. But just imagine if it wasn't even possible if it wasn't even legal for you to experience a worship service that was in a language that you could understand. Uh, this, was, this was a terrible time. And really, uh, as a result, as the power of the church was abused, the word of God was more and more obscured. And so Huss, just like Wycliffe, you know, Huss became vocal. He became vocal about the abuses and, and the, the, the ways in which church leaders were unrightfully I'm sorry, wrongfully, unrightfully, wrongfully using their authority. This is really interesting for Huss because he was very loyal to the church. This was a troubling dynamic for him. You know, he, he knew where he was and he understood that, well, the, the, the authority of the church is supposed to be infallible. How could they be using their authority in such fallible ways? This was a really troubling thing because he was loyal to the church as an establishment, as a system. In fact, the story is told of a time where, where Huss actually found himself walking on the streets of Bohemia and he found an artist. An artist had set up a, an exhibit out in the public. And he, uh, this artist had set up two different paintings. And I don't have those paintings here for you on the screen, but just kind of imagine, use your imagination. One of those paintings was, was of church leaders processing into their, you know, their palaces of sorts, right? Ecclesiastical authorities. And so you could see these church leaders kind of in their pomp and circumstance in this picture, very ornate, very luxurious. This was one picture that the, the painter had set up. And then next to it, next to it was a picture of Jesus riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Picture's worth a thousand words, wouldn't you say? And especially when it was set up in contrast like this, it allowed for people to recognize, wait a minute. Somewhere along the line, we stopped following Jesus. Yeah. And so for us, this was kind of a turning point. Like he, he, he realized, well, maybe there is this authority that's been entrusted to the church, but it, the church leaders are using it unlawfully. And so what he began to do is that he concluded that I've got to put full weight on the wisdom of God's word, 
not on man's traditions. And while he concluded that, while he taught that from his pulpit, it earned him a martyr's stake. He was burned at the stake. Huss, it was said that the flames of his martyrdom kindled a fire in the church, <laughs> which threw immense light on the surrounding darkness and the rays of which were not to be so easily extinguished. That's what one historian said. I tell you what, Huss, though he met a martyr's end, he left an impactful legacy behind. The great reformers who followed thereafter each came to being able to identify the errors of the church and the extremes of the church that needed to be corrected only because they clung to the word of God. So why are we telling these stories about John Wycliffe? Why do we tell the stories about John Huss? It's just to underscore this very simple thing, that the Reformation of long ago that still continues had its spring in the Bible itself. Do you follow what I mean by that? Have you ever seen a spring before? Um, not, I'm not talking about the season spring. I'm talking about a spring, a spring. Uh, we were, where were we? We were just um, out by fair play. We were hanging out with some friends over the weekend, and uh, this was over the summer. We were hiking in some place that, you know, we got to by, uh, by a side-by-side, -side, you know, four-wheeler. We're going over granite and stuff and all this kind of stuff. And saw lots of trees, lots of rock. Looked beautiful, but dry. And as we were hiking along, we, we, we ended up getting out of our four-by-side. Or, yeah, our side-by-side. Our -side, we were hiking along and we stepped in some squishy, soggy mud. And we kind of looked around a little bit. And sure enough, there was bubbling water just from the trail. There's no river up there, but oh, okay, yeah, you follow. There's kind of a little creek. Kind of. Tell you what, springs are incredible. It starts and then it gives life. Do you follow what I mean? The spring itself was the Bible when it comes to the Reformation. Here's a quote. Uh, Ellen White says it a lot better than I do. <laughs> this is in The Great Controversy. This led Huss to adopt for his own guidance. Oh, did I miss something here? Okay. This is a quote that we're still talking about Huss. It says, This led Huss to adopt for his own guidance and to preach to others for theirs the maxim that God speaking in the Bible and not the church speaking through the priesthood is the one infallible guide. Ooh. Okay, so this is one of Huss's conclusions. Hey, look, we've got to rest our authority upon the very word of God itself. If you're looking for guidance, don't just look for what other people are telling you to do. Look for what the Bible is telling you to do, yeah? That's the one infallible guide. Now notice this when I'm talking about the spring of the Bible. It says this, the great movement that Wycliffe inaugurated, which was to liberate the conscience and the intellect, had its spring in the Bible. Here was the source of that stream of blessing. He taught not only that the Bible is a perfect revelation of God's will, but that the Holy Spirit is its only interpreter. Wow, just let that sink in here, okay? He taught that the Bible, think about his context and where people were taught that, no, 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 you should not have the Bible. Only those trusted with authority should interpret the Bible for you. This is what Wycliffe was teaching here. No, no, no. The Bible is a perfect revelation of God's will for you. And how do you interpret it? You don't go to someone. You go to God himself. God's Spirit interprets the word for us. And notice this, that every man is, by the study of its teachings, to learn his duty for himself. For himself.
Tell you what, going back to that, that parable that Jesus told to the ten virgins, it wasn't just that one of the virgins had all the lamps and that they were just kind of, the, the rest of the nine were tra tracking along, tagging along with them. No, no, no. Each one had their lamp with them. It's not just that we have the Bible secondhand, but that we should have it for ourselves firsthand. Do you follow me today? Yeah. And this is, I tell you, this is my story. <laughs> you know, I grew up, I grew up, praise the Lord, in an amazingly loving and supportive environment. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up going to Christian school. I grew up going to a church. I grew up around very, very loving and supportive people who taught me Christian values, biblical values. But I tell you, it wasn't until I began to read the Bible, not just because of it was assigned to me or not just because it was homework, not just so I could say the right answers in Sabbath school or whatever the case might be, but it was when I began to read the Bible for myself that my life was changed. I just want to appeal to us today, friends, don't live in a dark ages of your own making. There is a lamp. Don't let it sit on the table. Take hold of it. And you will find that that word is life. It's life. As we're thinking about this today, I wonder what is it, what is it that will change in our lives? If we really want to make that choice, you know, if we're seeing deformation all around us and we're realizing the need for reformation in our lives, friends, it starts with the Bible. <laughs> Grab hold of the word. Don't just... Be content with someone else grabbing hold of it for you. No, 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 no. We were talking in our Sabbath school class, right? About, uh, there was one time where I was asked to speak for a week of prayer at an elementary school, and I, um, I was trying to Im impress upon them the importance of studying the Bible for themselves, and I should have done this today. I don't know why I didn't, but I brought some King's Hawaiian bread. Anybody, anybody a fan? King's Hawaiian bread, yeah, yeah, yeah. Brought some King's Hawaiian bread, and I talked about how, you know, the word is often compared to bread. That's why Jesus says, you know, it's not, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I brought a volunteer up, maybe a third grader or something. He came, hey, buddy, are you hungry? You want some bread? Kind of toyed around with him a little bit. And I said, oh, yeah, you can have it. And I started chewing it myself. <laughs> and I put it into my hand. And I said, you want some? You want some bread? No. Why is that disgusting? <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why? We don't want bread that's chewed by someone else. What will give us life is when we take hold of the lamp for ourselves. So I wonder today, what's going to change today? What's going to change tomorrow and the next day for you if you're really wanting to say, yeah, I want a reformation, and it's going to happen as I take hold of the lamp for myself. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to me what my duty is. What's going to be different in your routine? May I just appeal to us again, don't live in a dark ages of your own making. If you don't have a routine or a habit of coming to God in His Word, make one. Be intentional. Be intentional about a set time, even an intentional place where you can be unhurried and completely focused. 
like little boy Samuel, who wasn't even aware that God was speaking to him. You remember that story, 1 Samuel chapter 3? He's hearing God speak, Samuel, Samuel. He doesn't even know God's voice, so he runs to his father figure, Eli. Hey, hey Eli, you called me. I tell you what, God wants to speak to us. How many of us, like Samuel, would say, here I am, Lord. Speak. <laughs> How many of us want to listen on a daily basis with the expectation that God has words of life to give to you, and by, by virtue of giving it to you, he's wanting to give life to someone else too. You realize that? So friends, today, how many of us want to say, yeah, I, I want to take these ancient words and let these ancient words change my life and change others' lives as a result? How many of you want to say yes to that? Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite our song leaders, Grant and Christine, to come lead us in a song. It might be unfamiliar to you. It's called Ancient Words. And, uh, you know, if it is your desire to say, yes, I do not want to make a dark ages of my own. <laughs> I want to take hold of God's lamp. Would you just stand with us as we sing this song together? And then I'll close with a word of prayer after.
Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that your ancient word would impart life to us today and every day. God, we pray that we would learn the lesson of history. And while prophecy predicts a time in which that history will be repeated, that deformation history, that fateful history may be repeated, but Lord, we, we ask for a repetition of reformation history, that we would experience a revival according to your word. Father, many of us are going through seasons of darkness, darkness of personal crisis, darkness of confusion, darkness of addiction and idolatry and things that may, may not, we may not even be aware of. And so we ask that you would give us the good sense just to run to your word, to take hold of the lamp. Father, I pray that, just as Paul said to Timothy, that this would be able to make us wise unto salvation. That as we read your word, as we chew on your word, as we receive your word, it would do a work in us to sanctify us, to ready us for your return by grounding us in real relationship with Jesus day after day. Thank you, Father, for the blessing that we have to live on this side of Earth's history. And we just want to be part of shining light till you come. So please, make us receivers of the light of your word so that we can be givers of it too. In Jesus' saving and precious name, let everyone say, amen, amen and amen. You may be seated.